Hello, and welcome to Measuring Violence, a podcast out of the University of Delaware Center for the Study and Prevention of Gender-Based Violence. My name is Dr. L. Rochford. I'm a postdoctoral researcher out of the center, and I'm sitting here with the two co-directors of the center, Dr. Hattery and Dr. Naccarelli. How are you doing today? We're fine. Thank you so much for having us. <laughs> Thank you for having us. Dr. Rochford. So this is our kind of inaugural episode. And so I wanted to start with what is the center and how did it come to be? The center actually began its roots in an undergraduate program that started in 2011 through funding through the Verizon Foundation and a grant that we co-wrote with the Delaware Coalition Against Domestic Violence. We are housed in the Department of Women and Gender Studies, and that department decided to provide an undergraduate training program for students who are entering the field of gender-based violence professionals, folks who provide intervention services, and folks who are invested in prevention techniques. So the curriculum is the first of its kind in the country, and it takes coursework from all different departments across the university, human development and family sciences, criminal justice and sociology, women and gender studies. So that's fascinating because you often hear gender studies as, oh, what are you going to do with that? And here you're directly plugged into the community and practitioners. Absolutely. So students see professional paths for them in a variety of different locations. So the Domestic Violence Prevention and Services Program even though it's called domestic violence and pre prevention and services, it's really broader than that. It's really gender-based violence, prevention and services. And students see career paths um, confronting domestic violence, confronting violence against gender non-conforming individuals, violence against those with marginalized sexual identities, as well as all of the different systems that surround intimate partner violence. So from intimate partner violence and sexual assault, we know we engage with the criminal justice system. We know we engage with housing authorities in various locations. We know we engage with economic systems related to equal wages. So the students really do see a variety of paths beyond the traditional social worker law school route, which is also a very popular path that many of our students choose to take. Well, and one of the things I love about working here at the center is just how many things are going on. And I think that makes sense because instead of treating violence like a single physical act, it's treated as kind of a process of inequalities. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that and how the center approaches violence as a subject of research. I think that's absolutely. And, you know, being housed in the center, the center being housed in the Department of Women and Gender Studies is signaling a particular frame and lens and approach that we take to thinking about violence. And, and that for me personally, but I think also reflected in the department, is an anti-racist feminist lens. So we think about all of the systems of power as they interact in a single instance of violence. So, you know, the power and coercion that's happening in a relationship or that's happening in um, any any sort of assault. Um, but we're also, as Dr. Naccarelli mentioned, thinking about how these larger systems work. And so when we think about research, um, we might be researching 
particular people's experience with violence, or we might be researching people's experience with the criminal legal system or people's experience with the housing authority or people's experience with uh, healthcare providers, people's experience with all of these systems that shape the violence in their lived reality, but also their risk for violence, their opportunities to escape violence, prevent violence, all of those things together really are the frame in which we locate all of our work. What Dr. Hattery is explaining is the lived application of a really popular term called intersectionality. And so often in the popular use of the term intersectionality, we stop at the individual level. We stop at the level of our individual social locations, our racial identities, our gender identities, our sexual identities, our ethnic identities, and we don't connect those individualized social locations to the systems, the various broad systems that folks are embedded in. So how Dr. Hattery was just explaining our research agenda encapsulates our application of intersectional principles in that we're not just focusing on the individualized experiences of violence, but also taking that analysis to the um, structural level, the institutional level. And it's really important that our research products and our professional training pays attention to both of those elements of intersectionality. So you mentioned applied work and applying these uh, theories. What does it look like to be a research center that does applied work? It looks like we have multiple partners from different um, segments of the population. So I would say our foundational partnership the one that began our academic curriculum was between all of our community partners, and they come particularly from not-for-profit profit services in the state of Delaware, as well as different systems within the state of Delaware, and our faculty. And the faculty and the community partners have frequent conversations or continuous collaboration about the training we need to provide students to be successful in this field, as well as the particular program evaluations and research needs that different community partners may have to inform their practice. So that requires lots of deep and active listening and continuous collaboration and refinement. Then you add the students to the mix. The students go through the curriculum. That curriculum is designed to meet training areas to become certified domestic violence specialists within the state of Delaware and through other professional organizations. They learn the theory and the concepts in the classroom. They go out to the field and provide direct services to survivors and offenders of multiple forms of violence. And then they come back to their faculty and they say, you know, the ideal is not quite um, matching up to the real. Um, the community partners and, and the folks who work with them might need um, further training in this area, or we learned something from the community partners that has no place in our curriculum, and we need to make sure that that is represented. And so we go through this organic process of adding and refining and then having that inform our agenda. So when you think of our center here at the University of Delaware, I, I really think it's important for folks to picture not just academic researchers, but us in partnership with 
the community service providers throughout the state and the various state systems, as well as our undergraduate students who can create and build knowledge. I would love to give an example of sort of, for me, one of the most, an example of something we're working on right now really illustrates this interconnection. And so we're working on a project where, as Dr. Naccarelli said, students are taking classes, they're going out into the community. One of the things they're realizing and learning and feeding back to us is that a particular process that happens in Delaware, which is a court mediation that's mandated in custody cases, divorce, separation, um, that those folks have a lot of training in mediation, but they don't necessarily have training in recognizing the presence of domestic violence, especially the subtler forms of power and control that can be happening literally in a mediation session. And so they come, they give us that feedback. We, you know, have conversations with the community partners who are supervising the court mediation process and they're in agreement. And so together we design, you know, training so that court mediators can learn about, you know, and learn to detect subtle forms of intimate partner violence that are, that might be taking place in a family that they're working with. Simultaneously, the center is engaged in a research project right now looking at victim survivors' experiences with a variety of criminal and legal system actors, one of which is the court mediation process. And so that research can directly feed back to the development of the training that then goes into the field. It can also be taught in you know classes, so students are learning some of that. So it's really this incredible feedback loop. And I, w- I also I want to you know point out that that's really unique. There are no other centers that examine or look at or call themselves gender-based violence centers um, that have this, as Dr. Naccarelli mentioned, they're typically just purely research for research sake. Um, whereas what we're doing here is not just research for applied sake, so applied research. We're also doing research that advances the field of knowledge and scholarship in the area. Those two things don't have to be mutually exclusive, and I think here they're not, um, but also that, that that research is deeply embedded in, in basically in conversation or in feedback with training, with community partners, with classes. And so it's really all, for, for me, that's the sort of beauty of the center is that it's integrated in a, in a full way that allows for best practices to be investigated, trained on, filtered in, with the whole mission of making Delaware and hopefully, you know, other places too, safer, right? I think we'd be remiss. I I should note it's in my email signature that Delaware also has the oldest gender studies program and we're celebrating 50 years. Well, we're not quite the oldest, but we are among the oldest. I believe we are the top three oldest women in gender studies programs in the country. But yes, we are celebrating 50 years in 2023 and we're very proud of that. And this center, I think, does uh, so much that's unique. And, and hopefully, you know, the center will be around for 50 years. But one of the things I really love about the center is so often um, in university settings, research and teaching are seen as things that take away from each other. And I think the center does a really good job of integrating those two things. And so I wondered if you could talk about how teaching informs the research and how undergrads are participating in the center. One of the ways that undergrads are participating in the center is through, we this year, we've developed a research lab. And we're really, really proud of sort 
sort of launching the research lab. And for the listeners, you know, hiring Dr. Rochford was a huge <laughs> part of that because it we operate, we call it a nested mentoring model. So we have the co Dr. Naccarelli and myself as co-directors, Dr. Rochford as the postdoctoral fellow. We have graduate students and undergraduates and each person in that model plays a critical and important role in making sure that the balls don't come tumbling because, uh, you know, you probably get the sense, listeners, that we have a lot going on. <laughs> we, have, we have a lot going on here. And one of the ways that that happens is that it's not the responsibility of one person or even of two people. It's the responsibility of a team. And each of those team members is contributing to the overall mission. They're contributing in very specific ways. And hopefully, and you know, maybe another episode can interview some of the students, um, hopefully in ways that allow them to grow and develop their skills as researchers, but also their interests. Like, you know, maybe I'm particularly interested in um, something that I got started with in the center. And now as an undergraduate, I want to do a senior thesis. Or now as a graduate student, I want to think differently about how that plays into my master's thesis or dissertation, that it's that it's a place where people can grow and stretch while contributing to the sort of overall mission. So it's another way that we're that we're literally training students in the research lab. And it also is directly related to our commitment to the undergraduate professionalization of our students because Dr. Hattery just highlighted some research skills that would translate beautifully to um, graduate education and, and different careers along that path of generating scholarship and teaching. But those same skills that the folks acquire in the research lab are also really useful for the current climate of not-for-profit organizations and social service organizations, grant writing, evaluation, statistical analysis. These are all highly marketable skills and these are critically necessary to ensure funding streams that keep these services afloat. So it's also in, in a stable professionalization, a stable workforce that we can prevent violence because when these organizations are not faced with rapid turnover, when their staff understands um, what being trauma-informed is, taking care of the self, understanding how trauma manifests in the lives of their clients and their coworkers, they're less likely to burn out. Mm -hmm. And if they can sustain the funding streams, they're more likely to have stable staff and thereby they're providing better intervention and prevention services to their clients. So th that's yet another example of how it's not just the scholarship, it's not just the academy, but it, it's the community as well. And so we always bounce off one another like that in, in connecting the dots about why this matters for professionalization, why this matters for scholarship, why this matters for intervention services, and why this ultimately matters for prevention and creating safe and stable communities. Well, and one of the things I've really enjoyed is seeing former students who are now working, usually in Delaware, they seem to stay in the area, come back with um, comments and suggestions and asking for thoughts on on strategy. I've, I've at least noticed that happen a few times. Is that pretty common? Well, 
we're seeing the outcomes now. So since the, the undergraduate curriculum started in 2011, now we're seeing our first cohorts of graduates assume leadership positions in different agencies. And that is truly the most rewarding, exciting element of actually my work to see that, that the whole program and the plan is actually working. And now they are staffed and leading different agencies in, in the state of Delaware, but also um, nationally as well. I would add to that, that I think from a prevention standpoint, through a prevention lens, the beauty of that process that you are both talking about and that you're witnessing is that it means that at some point, literally every professional in the state of Delaware will have been trained in mm-hmm. curriculum that's offered through Women and Gender Studies and supported by the center that, that has a lot of you know positive benefits. It's uniform, right? We have a sense of quality control, like students who are going through are all taking a certain number of required courses. We hope, I, I, you know, it's hard to guarantee anything, but I think we can be pretty sure that students who go through those programs and and that workforce development and go into those positions are trauma-informed, have learned about all forms of gender-based violence through an intersectional, anti-racist, feminist lens. So rather than you know, students coming from kind of all over the place, and maybe I majored in social work, and maybe I majored in family science, and, and now, you know, instead, not that those aren't good programs, and as Dr. Naccarelli mentioned, our students take those classes, but we can, you know, what better way to engage in prevention than to literally train the people who will do the prevention, <laughs> right? And not train them as if we know everything, but train them in that we're also conducting research that's yielding best practices. We're in constant conversation with community partners. And that synergy together, I I think, is really the power of transforming a community like the state of Delaware. And how, you know, how cool would it be if other universities took up that mission in their own state? Imagine what would happen if this was happening at the University of North Carolina, this was happening at the University of, you know, Pick a place. Um, any state could literally take this model and recreate it. It's take a lot of work. It's not like you can just transport it. But but to recreate this model, I think it's really important to have two ingredients. And um, those ingredients emphasize the points that uh, Dr. Hattery just made. One, the foundation in feminist anti-racist principles that teaches our students, and we continually refine this ourselves in our analysis of the dynamics of power and control. And other systems can provide training to intimate partner violence advocates, sexual assault advocates, but they do not necessarily contain that feminist and anti-racist understanding of the dynamics of power and control. So that is a critical ingredient to replicating this program in a way that fuels prevention, that transforms the damaging gender norms and racialized assumptions that allow violence to continue. So that's one thing we can't forget. And the other is really highlighting, again, I, I can't say this enough, 
the role of the community partner. If they were not willing to host our students, if they were not willing to open up their organizations to us, none of this would exist because then we don't have the pipeline to exchange information and collaborate in a very real, tangible, applied way. So you have to have a, a community of, of partners willing to open themselves up to you, and you have to be willing to open yourself up to refining what you think is a best practice and modifying it for what they say they actually need. The other body of folks who needs to be willing to support this endeavor is faculty. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so we have an internal advisory board uh, for our center. They were the folks critical to the establishment of the curriculum. They are the folks who generate different bodies of scholarship. They are the folks who take on different um, initiatives within the center. So those faculty come from all different departments, as I named earlier, sociology, criminal justice, human development, and family studies. But they also come from student health and wellness. And that's another important ingredient. It, it can't just be academics on the board. You have to have folks who are practitioners and advocates in the field. So our bylaws highlight that we always have the voice of practitioners on the advisory board. And the fact that we made the decision to have a representative uh, from the staff of the University of Delaware signals our commitment to also working to keep our own community safe, working to apply these principles within the sexual misconduct policies of the University of Delaware, the investigation practices, the intervention services, the um, building of community of invested individuals through a coordinated community response team. So, so you need the faculty and you need the institutional buy-in, I believe, to be truly successful with our community partners and with our students. So you got to mix up lots of ingredients <laughs> If, if this is going to, to be real and also sustainable. I'm always amazed at how much is going on at the center, but then I think it's it's also sometimes like humbling to sit down and like think through like all the different things that the center has been up to and is involved in. And not to make this, you know, just a very long ad for the center. <laughs> I do enjoy working here. But I'm curious about the intersectional approach to the study of violence and the practice of violence prevention. And could you talk a little bit about what that means for our listeners who maybe aren't as up on, on the social science list? I think one example for me has been thinking about, and my own research in, in these areas informs my perspective, thinking about the ways in which, as Dr. Naccarelli mentioned, you know, violence is experienced as the individual level, but it's very much embedded in social institutions and in structures. And so for me, when I think about, for example, gender-based violence, although it is sexual violence and it is intimate partner violence, it's also lots of other things. And I think an illustration of that or an empirical example is thinking about um, what we term the sexual abuse to prison pipeline. Yeah. Um, so many people are familiar with the school to prison pipeline, but the sexual abuse to prison pipeline is really the story for girls and women. About 85 to 90% of women who are incarcerated have a history of sexual and or intimate partner violence. And they their pathway to prison is largely in response to those experiences, those traumatic experiences as younger kids, 
they get exposed to the criminal legal, to the surveillance of the criminal legal system. It might be that they're trying to escape. It might be that they're self-medicating. It might be that they're doing, you know, a variety of things that are technically illegal, but they're very much in response to the trauma and violence that they've experienced. Then they are pulled into the criminal legal system where they further experience the, you know, the sexual violence for sure, about 40 to 50 percent of people who are incarcerated, women and children who are incarcerated are experiencing sexual violence in prison, but also this, the violence of the state, right? Prisons mm-hmm. are not, you know, they're, they're violent places. Um, and the, the, the fact of having your rights removed from you is a form of state violence. And so thinking about when we, can, when we begin to think about preventing and intervening in gender-based violence in that way, it points us to different spots, right? It says, why are we incarcerating young girls, for example, whose primary offense might be running away or truancy or some drug and alcohol abuse that really is a cry for help based on trying to flee violence? And instead, we, we subject them to a system of state violence. So it points us to different places for intervention and prevention. So let's build on the the criminal justice system and, and the sexual assault, the sexual abuse to prison pipeline. And let's go to another system like healthcare and public health. So we, we know that um, intimate partner violence, sexual assault is a public health crisis mm. that actually results in the prevalence of major health conditions. We know about and study the impacts of subtle brain trauma. So how do you take research from the center and apply it to outside the center? One of the approaches that we have in the center is that intervention and primary prevention is really just a frame or a a lens that can be applied in any walk of life, in any um, occupation, for example. So not even just the more you learn, the more you're able to protect yourself or protect someone in your family. But we think about first line sort of quote discoverers of intimate partner violence. Often there are people like your hairdresser, perhaps your dentist, perhaps your nail tech. Somebody that you interface with on a regular basis might be the person And so if they're trained to recognize some of the expressions of the way in which gender-based violence is manifest, if they're familiar with that, the warning signs, then they're out there doing the prevention work on their own. And it's a a really, I think it's a a really powerful model for thinking about how to impact gender-based violence, but really equipping all of us, everyone, to be able to do that work. And and I don't want to make it sound like you can just run out there and prevent gender-based violence. But with some training, and it's not a lot, with some training, we really can have people at least able to, you know, ask a question, suggest a resource in real simple ways. I'll share a really quick story from a survivor who we work with. She was experiencing extreme intimate partner violence, and her sister's a hairdresser. And she went to have her hair done, and her sister said the most the, the people I encounter in the chair, in, in her stylist chair, who have the most hair loss, like hair just falling out, are nurses. Um, Their jobs are very stressful. You are exhibiting hair loss that's way more significant than the nurses. What is going on? And this ends up being the beginning of how she gets out of the relationship. So what if all hairdressers knew, and they do, that stress is a sign of hair loss, 
maybe ask a question. And if we could we could prepare people to do that, how, how great is that? And in some ways, we're, we're beginning with the work of the center before they're even in their professional occupation as a hairstylist, as a dental tech, as a nail tech, or a- any of these. When we start visiting schools and start teaching about healthy relationships in a very low stakes way, starting to have conversations with young people about the dynamics of power and control in their friendships um, through the use of tracking on Snap Maps, for example, or their friendships on Instagram when they post photos of what they did on the weekend and another partner, boyfriend, girlfriend, buddy is like, why wasn't I included? Who were you with? Those tiny little things add up to relationship violence later on. So if we spend some time um, working with our young people to teach them how to recognize patterns that can combine and escalate, then when they become a stylist, they see it. Um, Once you are exposed to it, you can't unsee it. So it's really important that the center engage in low stakes community outreach where you can see how this applies every day in in simple little ways. So I'm curious for the untrained listener, if you could give kind of one one sign that people might look out for and then maybe one, what's a green flag in a relationship? So what's maybe a sign that someone's in an unhealthy relationship? And then what's a sign of a healthy relationship? Well, a healthy relationship is one that um, both people feel comfortable at the pacing. A healthy relationship is where both people um, support the passions, interests, work life of their partner. A healthy relationship both people are doing the work, you're not always doing the planning, you're not always doing the hosting, you're not always doing the coordination. Healthy relationship is um, supportive. But but those red flags, and I really like to use the examples of, of technology right mm-hmm. now because it's so easy to see. It's, it's a tiny little thing that's often misinterpreted as love mm-hmm. or, or it's a tiny little thing that's used to demonstrate commitment. And at first you feel flattered because your partner is so invested in your relationship that you think this is how you display commitment. But it they actually tend to escalate over time. So if you're seeing a lot of little red flags that are combining and escalating over time, that's a sign that you might be in an unhealthy relationship. So going back to the the technology example, is your partner supportive of when you go out with your friends? Is your partner supportive of when you have a big test or exam and giving you the space to study? Or does your partner tend to pick a fight Mm -hmm. the night before a big job interview, a big exam, a big test? That's a tiny red flag. But in and of itself, not that big of a deal, right? That was a bad moment. Well, then, is your partner looking through social media posts, wanting to know the names of every person that you are with, wanting to um, know why they weren't inviting, interrogating sort of this digital archive of a moment? Well, now combine that with the fight the night before an exam. We're starting to have a pattern. When you're not responding well, is your partner threatening to hurt themselves? Is your partner 
threatening to hurt your pets? Is your partner threatening to damage your property? Okay, now we've got a case that's building a little bit more before it escalates into overt physical violence. When you get in a fight, do they punch a wall? That could be a big red flag that something is to come. Just because you had sex with them once, do they expect to have sex with you every time in the future? Sexual coercion. Are they tampering with birth control? Um, these are all tiny little incidents, again, that, that combine and escalate. And if we start t talking to young people about this at a very early age, then by the time that they're adults in their professional lives, they can see these patterns. So it's one thing to recognize it, but then you also have to know what to do to intervene and stop it, how to keep yourself safe if you are in that relationship, and then also how to keep your friend, family member safe when you see some of these behaviors. That takes a little bit more practice. That's the more in-depth trainings and programming that we hope that the center can offer. It's, it's both recognition and then safe action after the fact. I want to give, I want to amplify something that you said that I think is really important that it's, it's, I always try to emphasize it's not one, it's not one thing. It's the confluence of things. And the example I often use is we think about often a red flag can be your partner expressing outrage or concern if you're not home when you said you were supposed to be. Now, if your partner is like my mom, for whom being on time was late and five minutes early was on time, <laughs> you know, and half an hour early was early. Concern about time with someone who that's their entire orientation might not be a red flag. That might just be a personality trait, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so being able to distinguish, you know, as Dr. Naccarelli said, is it I'm concerned about time and I pick a fight and I want to know who everybody is and I'm scrolling through your social media, then you're be you're beginning to see that pattern. So it's important to you know be able to, to tell the difference between what's just a personality. Yeah, and that takes experience. That takes practice. And we believe that it's worth investing in that practice and, and showing what different experiences look like. And checking out with other people too, right? Like if you're if you're in a new relationship and the person seems very time oriented, maybe you want to, you know, like, where are you? Maybe you want to check with other people in their social circles. And if they're doing that with everyone, if that's like they're just, you know, they're just mm -hmm. a time person, probably not, you know, so another way to get a gauge on it is I, I, I listen a lot to survivors who say, you know, he, he gets mad, he doesn't hit his boss, he doesn't hit this person, he doesn't hit that person, he hits you. And so it, it, that can be another way to tell the difference is, is that this is just a general personality approach to everything, or I'm targeting you specifically, right? So part of the purpose of the podcast is to look at expansive ways of thinking about violence. And I think so many of the examples and the patterns of behavior don't involve overt physical violence or direct physical violence. I think there's an argument to be made that Breaking your partner's things is is violence and and demonstrates like violence capability. But I think there's this other interesting element. You're talking about hair loss. That the the stress of being in these coercive and violent relationships takes a toll on you in in ways that are not just injuries from from assaults. So could you say more about that? How do you think about violence as impacting? more than just, you know, one incident or one injury. I mean, one thing I think about, and we talked about it earlier, is 
that intimate partner violence is the leading cause of maternal death. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a powerful thing to know. And I think that's impactful. That's the direct violence, right? Like in all likelihood, that is someone being kicked, punched, physically assaulted and being killed. But what about things like miscarriages? Mm -hmm. Miscarriage is often a result of stress. And I don't know that we measure, for example, the impact of the stress of living with partner violence. And it might not even be physical violence, right? The stress of living with a partner who's emotionally abusive, financially abusive, all different kinds of abuse, psychological abuse, even if it never gets physical, even if it's not sexual, could end up to be the kind of stress where if it can make your hair fall out, it can it could make your body expel a pregnancy, right? Mm-hmm. So I think one of the things we have to get a lot better at is measuring those outcomes so that we have a better sense of not just we need we need to capture it, we need to know, but also then we can screen better, we can intervene better, we can prevent better. We can treat better. And it's a really exciting moment in the field. The past decade, we've seen this shift towards a public health orientation towards um, gender-based violence in all its forms. Prior to that, you know, it was the domain of criminal justice. And prior to that, it was the domain of the radical feminist movement Mm -hmm. in the the 70s and, and the 80s. So now we're at this moment where we can measure the health outcomes of surviving violence in a very meaningful way that reduces high rates of um, heart disease, that measures the consequences of all the subtle brain trauma, all of the physical injuries associated with it, the impacts of stress, like Dr. Hattery said. And when that narrative is fully established, when we can change people's ideas that this is a private problem or a problem based in the criminal justice system, but instead a preventable health crisis, then more opportunities open up for research projects, for really innovative collaborations and partnerships between healthcare providers and academic researchers, more funding opportunities open up, and you already see this happening with um, major initiatives within the CDC in their Delta grant funding initiatives. And I just think it's a really exciting moment to connect the dots between disciplines that weren't traditionally aligned with one another and have real consequences in people's everyday lives. Thank you so much. For our listeners, we will be airing largely work coming out of the center every two weeks. We'll be profiling different researchers out of the center. But other than this podcast, where can people follow the center's work and what events can people be looking out for? Well, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. We have a website that will provide all of our regular annual programming events here at the University of Delaware and we are most excited about our conference that we're hosting in September 2023 on the 27th and 28th here at the University of Delaware. And this is a really exciting conference for us because we practice what we preach here. This, every panel is going to have advocates and activists in the field doing the work combined with an academic uh, scholar, researcher, and we're going to engage in um, conversations that are based on um, the study of inequality, creating the conditions of equity, and combining best practices from the field with innovations in research. So we really hope you can join us at the University of Delaware. 
A special thanks to Manelli Marcelino for the intro and outro music on this podcast, and a special thank you to the University of Delaware's Center for the Study and Prevention of Gender-Based Violence.